Welcome to the 7 and 7 show where your host, Zach Ellison, extracts valuable insights from top investment experts. Seven key questions in just seven minutes. Stay on top of market trends, expand your investment knowledge, and get tips from the best in the business. Brought to you by Applied Real Intelligence, ARI, the leader in venture debt financing. www.arivc.com. Let's grow! Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison. Today, I have with me my former classmate at the University of Chicago, Good School of Business, and good friend, Sherman Williams. And Sherman is the managing partner of Academy Investor Network, which goes by AIN Ventures. And Sherman, it's great to have you today. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, and you made some time for us because it's, it's New York Tech Week. So you've got... <laughs> meetings galore so thank you for making a little time yeah so yeah. Uh, so tell everybody how you got here what's your story uh my story is i'm um, originally from chicago um 17 years old uh you know grew up in chicago uh big massive family extended family and a, a decent sized nuclear family um like really intellectually curious kid um played sports growing up did well enough to go into the Naval Academy, US Naval Academy, uh, Annapolis. Um, had a pretty crazy time there. That was that was a very interesting place. Um, definitely, uh, my upbringing didn't necessarily prepare me for for the rigors of the Naval Academy, but I was able to uh, not not take things too seriously, <laughs> uh, and that works if you let things kind of roll off your shoulder a little bit. Um, but was able to you know come out of the Naval Academy. Uh, was a military was a naval officer for many years. Um, I was a naval officer at a unique time because uh, it was during the wars, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was able to deploy quite a bit, uh, and I, that really helped me uh, mature dramatically, um, and, and really got me just on a certain track. I mean, I, the Naval Academy definitely helped me with that, but it was majorly reinforced during my time in the military. While in the military. Um, the Naval Academy has a it's heavy STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, right? That's that's the curriculum. Now you can major in other things, but even if you do are English major, you get a bachelor's in science because you you know you do all your physics, all your calculus, et cetera. Um, so I had a decent technology background coming out to Naval Academy, you know, academic, you know, my background is a bachelor's degree, but I was always interested in business. I didn't come from money, and I wanted to understand how money worked. And you're not in that environment with the Naval Academy. People are not people are not doing summer internships or anything like that, right? Uh, people are focused on going into the military, and people focus on like engineering, science, etc. So I started doing my own reading while as an early naval officer. I was fortunate enough to have a, a great roommate who comes from a family that's a little bit more wealthy than mine, and he connected with his financial advisor. And I, the financial advisor was a guy, Mark Stanley. He took me on because I was just some young naval, naval officer who was uh, friendly with. The, the uh the, the son of uh one of the families he oversaw and he would have great talks with me and uh directed me in the right path and that it really started me down a path of starting to understand finance <clears throat> and what happened was as i got older as a naval officer i started to realize you start to think about what interests you the most and for me it was it was i was interested in technology very much so and i really developed that love more so at the academy with school, but 
I didn't realize, but I was very interested in innovation and, and started to slowly realize that. And I wanted to learn about a lot about finance. And so when I looked at my life, I said, well, what, how can I do something I'm passionate about? How can I be in my sweet spot doing what I want to do? Um, you know, manifest, uh, manifest what, whatever my destiny is, right? And that was the intersect, working at the intersection of finance, technology, and innovation. And that's what I focused on. And I started, you know, researching and I found that the intersection is best served in venture capital. So I eventually applied to business. Uh, stayed, I stayed in past my, my required time at the Naval Academy. What, uh, from, in the Navy, after five years, I did about eight. Um, you don't have, I was not really inclined to get out. I, I was, you know, things were going well. In the Navy, I was doing, you know, great deployments. I mean, you know, secret sauce, a lot, a lot of a lot of guys wanted to, they want to do stuff, right? <laughs> it's terrible, it's terrible with the wars and everything, but we we want to do stuff, right? Put me in the game, coach. And um I um, you know, it was a little bit of a lull there, kind of that that 10 time frame. I think I just come back from Afghanistan. At that point, I was all uh, I was uh four deployed, I was in Southeast Asia actually, and I applied to uh business schools. I ended up at booth. I, I think I was in a an NEX, Naval Exchange somewhere, and there was some magazine, and I didn't know much. Uh, and it, it said, like, hey, the number one rankings of business schools. At the time, it was Chicago Booth, and I'm from Chicago originally. I was like, oh, this makes sense. Duh. Um, so I applied. Um, went through, went, I did go through a pre-program. It wasn't like I just applied raw, but went through some sort of program that I did kind of virtually, mainly, and got into Chicago Booth and had to think about it. And I was like, hey, I think this makes sense to to, to depart now. I was about 30 years old. You know, I came, went in the uniform at 17. So at that point, it's about half my life. And uh, that got me to Booth, Booth at VC internship. Um, I, I ended up going investment banking. Uh, and that eventually led me to the combination of those. Well, that Booth, like I said, did a venture internship. That eventually led me to uh, AIN Ventures and started this venture fund with my co-founder, Emily. But we've got a lot in common. I grew up you know, without a lot of money and um, really didn't have access to anybody that was in the finance space. You know, my internships are, are almost too um, menial to mention, <laughs> including college. Uh, but you know, I think one of the things I've learned is that learning is a lifelong process, right? Yes. As you've learned. And you don't necessarily need to have done something previously to figure out how to do it in the future. And that's why I think we're both good in the innovation space because innovation doesn't come with a track record. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I think to be a good VC, you've got to be forward thinking and you've got to do things that people have not done before. If you're yes. doing things the way that they were done 20 years ago, you're doing them wrong. And um, yeah, I think we both think like that. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to, to note. Um, so you served seven plus years in the Navy, mm -hmm. did multiple tours overseas. Uh, you and I both have a lot of friends that are, are veterans. You you have more because you you serve. But um, I've always felt that veterans make really good founders mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. I want to get your thoughts on that in, in terms of what characteristic what characteristics veterans have that make them better founders in many cases. One of the key things is that. I believe you can classify it in three ways, three things, three attributes that veterans have. And I think it's leadership, determination, and grit. So they've actually led people. I was an investment banker for years. You kind of lead people, but you do have a managing director that's over you. 
right? Um, it's a little bit different. You don't have that kind of that lead, that leeway. It's a different kind of leadership, you know, dealing within the, within the context of corporate America. In the Navy, once you leave that waterline, it's a situation where we all we got, right? So you you are given a task. This is you've been trained, overtrained to be able to accomplish that task, and you got you got to go out and do it. And that leadership, that ownership, extreme ownership, like you know, Jocko talks about, extreme ownership is something that is tough for people to understand. I think in the civilian world, because it's one thing to have money on the line, which is a lot. I'm now an entrepreneur with this with this new fund, AI Ventures. It's a lot to not know where the next paycheck is coming in. But it's a different thing when your life is right? uh, it's just different. And uh they both are they both kind of suck, but one sucks more. And so uh to have to be, you know, uh have that those issues. So I, I believe that it's the it is the uh that level of extreme ownership that you were forced to take at an early age that makes you a better leader. Then you say determination. You know, the military is putting you in, but from the from the day you enter a boot camp setting, what no matter your service, you're put in situations where um you're probably you're gonna have to you're gonna have to give all that you have. You're it's not going to be easy to get by. They find people who things are easy for and they make they they selectively make things harder for them almost like a computer adaptive test. Remember taking the GMAT, right? The better you do, the harder it should be, right? Um, and so you you have that issue with respect to determination. You're put in those environments early on, so it becomes ingrained in you. And lastly, it's grit. You also put in situations where it's not only hard for you, you are for sure going to fail. Like it is not likely going to work out. Um, may not even be a fault of your own. It may be the fault of the person, the person right to the left and right of you but you have to train them, right? If they fail, if you fail, it's your fault. You take extreme ownership as a leader and you have to deal with that and you're going to take the blame as the leader and you have to have the grit to be able to train the person next to you. Or if you were the reason that, fa that folks failed, you have to overcome, right? Your, 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 your past uh, miscalculations, whatever have you, and, and overcome. And being put in those kinds of environments at such a young age is really a leadership laboratory. They talk about the Naval Academy and West Point Air Force Academy as academies and, and, and different ROTC programs also, right? And Officer Candidate School. Those are leadership laboratories, effectively, right? And you don't get that kind of experiential learning. It's tough to get that in the civilian world, particularly where the stakes can be so high. So th those are the three attributes, I think, that make founders uh, much better and different. And the stats show that uh, founders uh, with a veteran background or with a military background do better than their civilian counterparts on a per capita basis. And those are great points that you mentioned. And, you know, I'd add to that, that I think veterans in general have uh, higher levels of integrity and, and also um, they're very adaptable. And you know, it's something that Kelly Perdue brought up on a previous podcast. You know, people often think that when you're in the military, you're just you know, told what to do and you and you're very robotic and mechanical, but the reality is things change you know, clearly and there's massive risk on the line. And so you have to be very adaptable. And I think that mirrors what we see in the business context where almost every startup, no matter how good they are, is gonna have to pivot multiple times. Mm -hmm. And to be a founder that's used to you know, pivoting with their life on the line 
you know, that gives them a, you know, a background that other people just don't have. Yeah, I agree. Um, the, that's a, a massive misnomer of the military that people are not adaptable. Uh, that's just wrong. As a matter of fact, the U.S. military is the opposite of that. The secret, the secret sauce, one of the secret sauces of the U.S. military is the non-commissioned officer corps, right? So those are those, you know, E6s to E9s and enlisted level six or enlisted level nine, if you think about levels like at Google or some corporate America reference. And it's, you know, being able, it's, it's giving those people ownership over a process or something, a task, and them, them doing, their, doing their share of the task and not necessarily being told what to do. We have a concept in the Navy called command by negation. It's basically here are your left and right limits. You figure out how to get there. And that's, most people don't, a lot of people who are outside the U.S. military don't realize that that's how the U.S. military works. There was a joke that I heard, overheard when I was in the military during uh, World, actually during the Cold War, when they were talk, looking at, um, when when the, the Russians, the, the USSR folks were trying to assess American uh, tactics, they couldn't, they couldn't figure it out. They were like, these Americans are like cowboys. They do this crazy stuff. Um, they were like, they felt they didn't even have attacks. They like, our tactics were kind of all over the place because we had, you had the ability to adapt and just to, and just to, you know, make it, just win, find a way to win, right? And so that is absolutely uh, a core competency of folks in the U.S. military that are wildly adaptable, at least the best of us. And you write about integrity. I actually, in our fund, I've invested in the past, uh, not, not through our fund, not through this fund, but I've invested in the past in the veteran-led startup that failed, right? Well, what I will say is that they came with a tremendous amount of integrity. Right, even though they failed, and that that was it was that was that's pretty solid, right? And you're not going to get that across the board. So I think you're right on a per capita basis. Those veteran-led startups uh, will come with a higher degree of integrity. And I think veterans' ability under pressure is is also incredibly important because founders just have so much pressure on them, and I don't think people realize that unless you've been a founder. And both you and I invest in founders, but we're also founders ourselves. And so we understand how hard it is to wear risk 24-7, but you know, part of being a veteran is that this new kind of uh, risk that they would experience as a founder, it, it's, it's, it's clearly a lot of risk and a lot of responsibility, but it's nothing that they haven't really done before in terms of the level of intensity. Yeah. And so I, I think a lot about that. And what I always look for is is people who have a footprint of, of success and overcoming adversity. To me, that's the most important factor. And that, that ties in with very high correlation to grit and persistence, right? The only mm -hmm. way you overcome adversity is if you've got grit and, and resourcefulness and, um, and the ability to you know, stick with it. I remember I was reading a Malcolm Gladwell book years ago, and I, I think it was Outliers. I mean, he's written a couple of good books, but I'm pretty sure it was an Outliers where he talked about if I recall, it was an event that brought together a bunch of you know, hedge fund managers with military uh, commanders and you know, leaders. From, and he said it was like two peas in a pod because they are both taking immense amounts of risk with you know, valuable assets, people and money. Right. And you know, these these leaders weren't necessarily on the battlefield because they were so senior that they were you know, they were calling the shots. But, you know, all that responsibility ultimately lay with them. And he thought it was just incredible how similar they were 
and how you wouldn't have actually known who was in the military and who is who is the hedge fund manager based on you know, how they approached risk because they both dealt with risk on a daily basis. And yes, your experience, I, I'm a true believer that your experiences will shape you. Right. Um, I, I, I'm going to use two like cliches. One is don't, you know, don't pray for an easy life, pray for the endurance to, to pray for the ability to endure hard life. Right. Uh, and, you know, suffering, the ability to suffer is part of the human experience, the ability to go through hard things. Not, suffer is too negative a word, but the ability to go through hard things and put yourself in very difficult situations and come out on top is essential to the human experience. Running toward easiness and simpleness is not necessarily a good thing. I don't think that's a, I, and my person is me, Sherman talking. I don't think that's a life fully lived, right? And so the experiences of, you know, Jamie Dimon, I, mean, I think there's 200 some thousand people at, 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 in the, at J.P. Morgan, you know, that's the size of the U.S. Marine Corps, right? Now he doesn't, have, people aren't going to die, but he is, he's feeding 200 some thousand families, right? And then with the lending, et cetera, I mean, it's a large bank in the, in, in the Western world, right? So there's a lot of people that rely on it. Uh, 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 you know, the commander of SOCOM or the commander of CENTCOM right now, but with Israel and uh, Hamas, you know, with that going on, that's a tremendous amount of responsibility. There's a full, there's effectively a full armada. I think there's two care groups in, in, the, in the Eastern Med right now. And so um, that's a lot of life to, to, to depend on, right? Um, or that he has to, that he is focused on. And so those experiences will naturally shape you. And so I, I you know, I, I think you're right. And I, I mean, me personally, in my life, I try to go thing, through things that are a little bit more difficult just to remind myself. I think I have to do that, right? To remind myself, like, suffering is not a bad thing. Put yourself through hard things because to me, that's the sweeter part of life when you overcome I, those I 100% agree. And my saying is get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything I do, I mean, I, I'm always at the limit, right? I'm, you know, we were talking before we started recording and you're like, you know, how are things going? I'm like, it's going great. You know, how do I have time for everything? I operate at 130% capacity at all times. Mm -hmm. And you just have to be able to do that. And if you work for me or with me, you have to be able to do that too. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. level of expectation here. And, and I think, you know, most people aren't comfortable with being uncomfortable, but once you get used to it, it's all good. You know, it's, it's just, it's a day in the life. <laughs> With, like with AI and ventures, starting a venture fund, particularly in this environment, I've taken so much risk, it's not even risky from exactly. a financial risk standpoint. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. But it's particularly when I, you know, had, you, you know, you were in finance before, I was an investment banker, right? I mean, those things pay well, it's a good steady life, but that's, that wouldn't have, that would not have fulfilled me. And I knew that. So I took that risk. I, I, I made that leap. And your founders are also making that leap. A lot of your best founders can easily go work for someone else by definition, right? Um, them being that competent, by definition of them being that competent to actually, you know, selection bias towards those founders that of course are successful, right? And so you have to, you have to live, you, have, you, you want a life fully lived, put yourself out there. Uh, you know, they, they talk about, speaking about Malcolm Gladwell, I saw something about, you know, folks on their deathbed the one thing that they said was, why did I, why did I not pull the trigger on X, Y, and Z? You know, live a life with no regrets, you know, push, push, push. 100%. So let's dig into AIN Ventures and, and mm -hmm. you know, how you decided to start it, you know, how you've been building it, 
and where you're at now, all the good things that are going on that you've told me about? Yep. So AI Adventures, um, I left banking and I was looking for a role in venture, was working as a venture partner at a few startup, at a few funds, just, you know, helping them source deals, et cetera. One or two of them gave me like a, an official title, like, you know, you know, kind of like a, a VC in residence or a, a VC in training or whatever have you. Um, but I had been doing, I, I, I did my first, first venture internship in 2011 while working as an investment banker. After that first like year and a half that those initial associate years, I picked my head up and I was constantly going to entrepreneurial events in whatever city I was in, staying ingrained in that community because I knew I wanted to tack back towards venture. And so what happened was one of the folks I was working as a venture partner for liked the ideas. They brought, they brought me an idea, um, actually brought me the idea for AIN, like bringing together academy grads, because we, we're a venture fund and we also run a syndicate separately, right? And they brought me the idea of the syndicate. And what I said to them was, and I did a whole PowerPoint about this, and I said, I like the idea of a syndicate. But I'm in a ton of syndicates. At that point, I had invested in a ton of companies with my own personal capital, had led syndicates. And I said, syndicates are terrible. It's like herding cats. And unless you already know wealthy people, and syndicates are very difficult to do long-term without a fund. It's just, it's just very difficult. And so I said, you, you probably need to start a fund that will help, that, that will help ensure that that syndicate lasts a very long time. And I, I, the concept of dual use has been around for a long time, but people, other than maybe Lux Capital and a few other folks, people really put in their stamp on dual use. That wasn't really a thing in 2019. So define dual use for everybody, just so everybody- Companies, dual use technologies are companies that have both government and commercial application. But I had a certain view of dual use. I actually think that if you're relying on getting contracts from the federal government, what, no matter the department, it's very difficult to do that. But the for deep technology, a certain segment of dual use, for deep technology, the government wants to see certain technologies be in existence. So what the federal government will do is they have non-dilutive funding programs like the SBIR program, SCTR program, et cetera. They have these non-dilutive funding programs where they will uh, give non-dilutive funding, which effectively, and it's free, right? It's not, it's non-dilutive it effectively lowers the cost of capital. So you think about weighted average cost of capital, right? You're lowering the cost of capital for that company to develop its technology and to get to commercial markets. Do they have to pay interest on that capital? Negative. It's, it's completely non-dilutive. Okay. So the government's basically it's providing- a grant. It's a grant. It's a grant. It's a, okay. It's a grant right. that the government provides to, to basically build out these technologies that have governmental applications. Yes. Okay. But what we do is we find those technologies have both government applications and commercial applications. So we find those companies where- we can dramatically develop the, the theme from a financial standpoint. We're finding those technologies where the cost of capital for development of the technology is dramatically. At the time we had started the, the, the fund, there was a bill that had been, in, been in, uh, in Congress for some time called the Endless Frontier Act. That was that act was modified and was eventually split up and it was passed in the form of infrastructure portions of the infrastructure bill, the Chip and Science Act and Inflation Reduction Act. Now, a lot, a lot of that, that all happened after we started the fund, but we, we felt like it was going to come. And in those bills, something else happens that's important outside of just lowering the cost of capital to develop the technology. 
the government is effectively saying we'll be the first customer of the technology. If you think That's about important. the inflation, yes, huge, yes. right? Mm -hmm. So you can, you don't necessarily have product market fit, but you can say, I got money to develop the technology and I got money to actually, I, I proved this technology in the wild with a customer. That customer had to be the government, but I still proved it. Now I can go to the commercial sector and say, hey, the government used me. How about you use it? I was good enough for them, how, you know, and it helps out your pitch. And what we saw underpinning our thesis of dual use was the great power competition that was arising in 2019. And it was a great power competition between US, Russia, and China. And oh boy, there's no way that I could have guessed in 2019 what was the what I was guessing then would have happened to the degree that we the state that we're living in now, where February 24th of 2022, uh, Russia invades Ukraine, right? I could not have guessed that. And and that, and the, the deteriorating uh, relationship between or the the tense you know continuously tense relationship between the U.S. and and the CCP. And on a, on a bipartisan basis with respect to the United States, right? That's one of the few things bipartisan-wise there's agreement, agreement upon in the United States. I could not have I could not have guessed that. And so, not, I mean, I, I was I was betting it would happen, but not that fast, right? And so, there's a really interesting thing uh, where that great power competition is fueling the government to give ever more non-dilutive funding and 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 be the first customer to these newer technologies, right? And I was basically betting that that great competition was for sure gonna happen and it is actually playing itself out. And I believe it's going to last for many, many, many years. Because from a game theory standpoint, no one's incentivized to actually fight a nuclear war. So you will see something less than that. And that's in the form of proxy wars, et cetera, et cetera. But there are there's lessons, I don't believe history rhymes, but it echoes. And there's lessons to learn from the Cold War and World War II. During that time, um, really World War I, World War II, you know, we had what, a 20-year interwar period or something like that. And then you, you, you rolled right into the Cold War. You saw some of the greatest technological advancements in, in human history. But actually, you saw the greatest technological advancements in human history during that time. And right? Until now, right? Until well, now. Yeah, until now. Well, now it's starting to pick back up. I mean, yep. some of the stuff they did then was still radical. I mean, if you really look at the Apollo program and, and go into the moon in 19, like in the 1960s, it's insane with the level of technology that they had. But I mean, they did it and they're, they're wicked smart engineers and they, they made it happen. But you're, you're going to see something similar between the United States and the CCP because we're, 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 we're engaged in a total competition with the CCP. Yeah. It's not just militaristic. It's also economic. It's technology. It's it's societal. It, it, it's also you know consumerism. It, 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 it affects so many different areas. Well, right? so wait, pause there for a half a second because my thesis is directly aligned with yours, and and really, it centers on the fact that there's an arms race going on now that's that's heating up exponentially. But when I say an arms race, instead of weapons, it's technology because that's what's been weaponized. Data and technology has been weaponized. Um, and so there's going to be tons of money going into deep tech, like you you said, tons of money going into cybersecurity, tons mm -hmm. of money going into AI. 
and and there's basically infinite amount of money coming out of the government on both sides and that's going to keep driving innovation and and provide commercial opportunities as well there's an arbitrage opportunity that exists here that i'm going to tell everyone about it's not that there's an infinite amount of money it's the fact that us as early stage investors if one of our companies gets on contract with the federal government let's say let's say the federal government gives our companies 20 million dollars of R&D money, um, 20, let's say $15 million of R&D money, right? And on top of that, the federal government is the first customer for that technology, right? And that, and, and like that, and let's say it's a $10 million contract or something along those lines, that's $30 million, that's massive. And that $10 million of customer revenue, that's not really a big deal when you have $848 billion budget plus the, the other contingency operation budget plus a portion of the black budget puts you to north of a trillion of spend a year, right? That's a very big deal for an early stage startup and an early stage investor that invests, invests in X low valuation, but with that $10 million contract in technological development, that company all of, all of a sudden jumps up to Y and Z valuation, right? And so that's it's it's a peculiarity that's very unique to early stage venture that is dual use and at the intersection of dual use and deep technology that I don't think a lot of people understand. And per our U Chicago backgrounds, we're, we're we're finance nerds, right? Like you know we we understand that we understand what is happening in the context of black, right? We 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 fully we fully get that. A lot of people can't break down break that down, right? And then. You think about you think about beta. You think about you think about beta. You think about riskiness relative to the market. Where if you do not that we need to focus on that too much. I said with government contracts, but if you do get a government contract, that that revenue can be pretty sticky, right? The government's going to pay its bills because they're using our money, and we have to pay our bills, or otherwise you go to jail, right? So um, there's a there's a whole underwriting corpus, or underwriting uh, you know work that. That needs to be that and it needs to be done that's unique to that early stage dual use deep tech segment. And where I think you have competitive advantage and, and ARI does as well, uh, is that we've we've got an understanding of how that segment of the economy works, because you do have to know the ins and outs. So you have to know who's got the money, who makes the decisions, you know, who and, and ultimately. It's not like you can just read a book and it's going to tell you how to do this. You have to like, be in the weeds to really know where the opportunities are. So there's big 100%. barriers to entry for folks you know, that aren't you know, that aren't in the game. You can't just run in and do defense tech investing. It's very difficult. There are some excellent defense tech firms out there, right? Like um, you know, Scout Ventures, Squadra, Moonshots, um, Harpoon, uh, Decisive Point. Um, you know, Lux is probably the one of the most profound. Uh, they're the big, you know, and, and Founder Fund has a, has a massive arm. They're also really profound in the trade. Those guys have done excellent. ABC does a lot of defense tech deals. <clears throat> but here's the deal. Here's what everyone misses. Those guys are fine, and they don't miss out on this. I'm not saying that they do. But what I, what I think people need to appreciate is at the end of the day, whether you're selling pizzas or missile systems, you got to be able to sell them. Right, you got to be an entrepreneur. So, and then we walk a fine line also where we're looking at those technologies that can actually scale commercially. That is a core competency of AI and ventures. That's unique to us. So we may pass on a defense tech deal that those other outstanding defense tech investors do, 
and they're some of them some of them not pure pure defense some of them are more dual use right or science forward like prime movers lab or or, or abc right but we're looking for those things that can scale commercially not not saying that those other folks are because a lot of them are but that's what we're working to find line in order to make that assessment i'm trying to assess the entrepreneur and i'm trying to assess the eventuality of penetrating commercial markets in a lot in a wide scale way you know achieving 100 million dollars revenue in seven years on a current basis so sherman um question for you in terms of AIN, do you only invest in veterans and dual use or what's the mandate and how broad can it be? No, we do not only invest in veterans. We invest in dual use companies at the intersection of dual use and deep technology. That can be anyone globally. We will look and then potentially invest. And we've already done that. Separately from that, we do invest in veterans. And because of the unique attributes of veterans, that leadership, determination, and grit, we will invest in non-deep tech. If we do anything outside of deep tech, outside of that intersection of duties and deep tech, we will invest in veterans and we're industry agnostic there. Now yeah. I will say we have an overwhelmingly strong software bias due to who's on our team at this time. We don't necessarily have the ability to vet things outside of the software or the network to vet things outside of the software space, right? So we, you know, we, we, not, not to say we won't do a deal, in the consumer space or whatever, that's veteran-led. But those are going to be very few and far between for us. So to understand and reiterate, we invest at the intersection of Dewey's and D-Tech. Those founders do not need to be veterans. They can be anywhere in the world. We'll look globally. And separately, if we do anything outside of that space, we invest in veterans because of those three attributes, leadership, determination, and grit. And we're industry agnostic there with a strong software bias. Got it. That's really helpful. In terms of stage of, of company development, what stage are you uh, investing in predominantly? Pre-CC. Okay. What's um, that check size that you're targeting? So we ideally, we'd be able to write 250 to 750K checks. But And I tell people, you tell me the size of your fund, I'll tell you the stage you're investing. Yeah. Right? You back, it's the number you back into. So in terms of um, how you identify good founders, I mean, we talked to a lot about the dual use angle. How do you identify good good founders and especially uh, good veteran founders? So let me focus on good founders first from a deep tech standpoint, not veterans. Okay. I'm looking for technical talent on board the team immediately. I'm looking for someone who has worked in that industry space in some way, shape, or form that they're trying to disrupt. Because we we call we we classify deep tech as companies building advanced technologies, advanced meaning scientific or engineering risk is being overcome. Companies building advanced technologies that are out of the R&D phase, but those technologies do not yet have wide-scale commercial adoption. And those same technologies can either disrupt existing markets or create brand new markets. So scientific advanced, scientific engineering, overcoming that risk, I need a technical person on the team. The ability to disrupt an existing market or create a brand new market, I need you to have worked in that market or you worked in an adjacent market. Or you come to me with just some jaw-dropping, astounding way that's sensible to me and my network of how you're going to go to market, how you're going to attack a certain market. I need those I need those things, right, to be in existence from a team. Yeah. I didn't want to have seen you overcome something. I think a PhD demonstrates a lot of grit. I think that Starting starting a company before and failing demonstrates a lot of grit. Taking a risk of starting a company, even if it failed or succeeded, you know, the fact that you started a company before, it 
demonstrates a lot of grit, right? The fact that you overcame something is, is, is really important. We invest in first-time founders. We have no problem with that. But we've invested, we, we, have, we do have a lot of second-time founders, right? We have people who have, you know, they're able to tell a narrative, articulate a story to us, showing that they've, they've overcome something. That's also, that's also huge. The other big thing we're looking for is someone that, that is inspiring. You have the ability to recruit talent. That's something that not enough people talk about, right? Instead of going out, you, you're going to start a company, instead of immediately going out and pitch a VC, how about you pitch someone to quit their darn job or take time out of their day, well, their busy life and time with their family to help you on the side at, at, the, at the minimum on your startup? That in and of itself, is the that's the first people you need to win over before you go win a VC, right? And then win a partnership with a potential customer where they say, hey, I'm going to put money into you just to see this get developed before you go talk to a VC. Those are things to do. So I'm looking for founders that have that ability, that ability to be scrappy. They're not going to quit because you're right. They're likely going to pivot. It's a long journey. This is a seven to 15 year journey if you're successful, right? So I need to see that. And that's, the, that's, that's wildly important. So technical talent, work in that existing, work in that market, existing market or an adjacent market, ability to recruit folks and showing that you've overcome something in life. Those are great points. I've talked with others about this idea of being a charismatic leader who's a good marketer. Because to your point, I mean, what you have to do as a founder is attract resources of all types. And it's not just money. It's, it's you know, talent and it's many other you know, partnerships along the way. And that really never ends. You know, the, the entire journey is going to require somebody who's magnetic and is able to just attract resources through the force of their personality and the sheer the sheer force of their will in many respects, in my view. Another thing I think you hit on that I, I fully agree with that a lot of people uh, miss is this idea of having worked in that market and been successful in that market. Uh, I see this in FinTech a lot where there's a lot of uh, what I call like newfangled lenders and um, you know, wanna be like neobanks. And most of them are blowing up now and most of them will certainly blow up over the next couple of years. And the reality is, if you look at those founding teams, the majority don't have people that had real experience in that product. Like when somebody comes to me and they say they've got a lending solution and they have nobody on their team that's that's been a, a good lender and has underwriting experience and knows how the pieces really work, I know it's going to fail. It's just a matter of time. And I don't even know why people invest in a lot of these companies. Honestly, it just makes me question like VCs, quite frankly. You know, I'm just like, why would you invest in somebody who doesn't even know the product? When we graduated Chicago Booth, I can't remember who the professor was that was our keynote speaker. Um, younger guy, he wasn't that old. I can't remember his name. Uh, Kevin, was Kevin something? If I remember. I'll look it up. I can't remember either. Yeah. So long ago. We're older than we look. I mean, that's the thing. We're both... Wow approaching mid-40s and people think we're in our like late 20s early 30s yeah, I, I feel young i feel young <laughs> me too um and so the one thing he said was in order to be an out-of-box thinker you need to be know what's in the box first there you go you nailed it right you nailed it or you need to have someone around you that has been in the box first i've, I've done a lot of work in life sciences when i talk to tech people in Silicon valley i'm like you know hey we're gonna move fast and break things you're not gonna do that in healthcare and you're not going to do that with the defense department, yeah. right? You're going to kill people. That's what's going to end up. It's going to happen, and that's not going to fly. And so you see a, a different, a different approach. You do need, I'm not saying that you, you could be an entrepreneur 
that wants to disrupt the market. But at least find someone that has worked in the market and talk to them and, and, and take the good that they tell you and throw out the bad, right? And have them advise you at, at, the, at a minimum. But I do think to be a, a true out-of-the-box thinker, either you or someone very close to you has to have been in the box. 100%. So I know you have a meeting coming up uh, in the next couple of minutes. So let's let's pause this. We're going to do part two later. So everybody who's listening, thanks for listening. Uh, Sherman Williams will be back. And um, we'll see you soon on the 7 and 7 show with Zach Elson. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison. We're glad you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can use to grow your investment returns. Stay connected with us and access previous episodes of the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison by visiting our website at www.7and7show.com or connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at 7 and 7 show. Learn more about ARI's Venture Debt Opportunities Fund and sign up for ARI's newsletter, Uncommon Sense, at www.arivc.com. For investor inquiries, please contact ARI's team at ir at arivc.com. Thank you for your continued support. Until next time, keep learning and growing.